Hello and welcome to Flavour Talks, the BSF's podcast exploring the wonderful world of flavours. Listen in to learn more about the people who make the food you eat taste great. Good evening, Danny. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, hi, Travis. Nice to be here. And, uh, I look forward to uh, uh, opening up with some uh, comments about me. I hope it's interesting for people, but, you know, who knows? We'll, we'll make it interesting. We'll soon switch off if it's not. We'll, we'll certainly make it interesting. <clears throat> so uh, as we like to start these podcasts, um, it would be quite good if you could give us kind of a like a rundown of not necessarily who you've been, where you've been, what you've done yet, yeah, uh, yeah. but uh, how would you introduce yourself now? Well, I'm uh, I'm sort of um, uh, uh, from the, the northwest of the UK originally, a long time ago, from Merseyside on the Wirral on Merseyside, and I um, I did my sort of degrees and uh, worked uh, around the food industry, the food uh, academic world of food, really through Reading Reading University back in the early days, and uh, I was at the National College of Food Technology in Weybridge. I mean, for me, as a, as a young lad coming from the Wirral, going down to Weybridge was like going to a different planet. It was something else. But um, yeah, so I was there in, 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 at the time and uh, one, one little time it was too. What a, you know, the institution which was called the NCFT has now, of course, been merged into Reading University, actually on site at the campus there. But uh, um, yeah, so in, in Weybridge, is very nice. I, I remember seeing John Lennon drive his mini past it, you know, down the high street. Oh my God! Cool. That that ages me, doesn't it? A bit, yeah. But uh, yeah, so I I kind of generally from there, I mean, going back to my childhood, really, I suppose it was, you know, had a had a real interest in flavour and and food, but you know, mainly because there wasn't a spice to be seen in the house. You know, my mother didn't know what spices and herbs were. God bless her. But um, my brother and I used to make used to go into the kitchen cupboards and try and start making cocktails out of whatever was in there. And you can imagine some of the uh, the horrors that we had um, coming through. We had to drink it, you know. So it was uh, <laughs> that, that was the start of my flavour career, really. So you would have, you know, gravy powder and orange juice and vinegar, you know, that sort of thing. Really creative yeah. stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah, really creative, uh, like serendipity. If it if it ever turned out well, completely. We, yeah. we never wrote, we, we never wrote anything down though. So if we if we'd come up with a winner, we would never be able to reproduce it. <laughs> <laughs> the forfeit shots, I love that. No, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, my brother went on to the on to be an artist, and I ended up in the flavor industry. So it was quite strange, really. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, so do you know, like, how how did you kind of get into be, being a flavorist? You know, so school well, and stuff like that. What what led you to to this kind yeah, of super weird? Yeah, this whole sort of thing. I think I just thought about food. Really, that's, that's quite interesting. Food. I can imagine, imagine a career in that. And then, in the local paper, um, the, uh, there was a job advertised. That's a company called Food Industries Limited. So I thought that's probably probably not far off in terms of where I want to be. And so I went for the interview, and it turned out to be Unilever's Flavor and and Food Ingredients Company in Bromborough and I got the job and the job turned out to be an assistant to a flavorist. So at that time, the, the, the flavorist I was, senior flavorist I was working with was a chap called Wim van Osnabrugge, who came out of Unilever Research in Duyven in, in the Netherlands. 
and he re relocated to Bromborough to uh, run the, sort of a lot of the flavour creation side. And I was like, wow, this is this is something, you know. And um, actually, I actually owe quite a lot to Wim really in the early days because um, he was a complete blend of of all sorts of things strange, but particularly science and art and living life to the full. That was Wim van Osnabrück. And he gave me the right grounding, really, because I, it's at school I loved science and I loved art. So these two things suddenly were presented to me on, on the desk, if you like, at uh, FIL, Food, Food Industry Limited, back in the early 1970s. That's cool. And when did you, like, how old were you when you kind of got that opportunity? Do you remember? 72, so I was 20. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. So I guess you, uh, had you just finished studies? Yeah, yeah, I carried on studying. I ended up doing HNC, you know, at yeah. Liverpool Poly and stuff. So, um, yeah, it, it, the education really was in, in the work, you know. I think often people say to me, well, how do you train a flavorist? Well, mm. really, you 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 put a flavorist in the, you put the trainee in a right environment and, and mm -hmm. flavorist really ends up training themselves, given, given, given guidance and steering and so forth. Um, you, you know, to sit people down and say, this is, this is how you make a banana flavor. is not how you train a flavorist. Yeah. Well, I guess it's all experience based because you need to have right, that. You say, well, here's some, here's some raw materials, smell and taste them. Which ones are like banana to you and put something together and you, you, you develop it like this, you know, you, um, this is why there. Are, I have. I haven't yet seen the uh, the flavorist training textbook. Really, there are plenty out there. Of course, you know. Mm. I think uh, John Wright has done some nice work in terms of this as an approach. You know, to the text to refer to, and of course, going back way beyond that. You know, we had the wonderful um, Mr. Stefan Arctander with his mm. tremendous, incredible piece of work that he did. Um, but this was reference rather than how to how to make. But it was still a a daily excursion into Arctander, which I found was completely and utterly enthralling and fascinating, you know? No, no, exactly. I fully agree. And there's lots of different ones, as you mentioned, like there's like Fenerelli's handbook and yeah. um, all, all yeah, of this, yeah. but there's multiple. There's really, really no, multiple. But it's, it's kind of a shame in a way because I have all of these in my, in my, in my company and, uh, uh, <laughs> they're weighing down the bookcases with the weight of them all, but, how often do we actually go to textbooks these days? We could, we just go Google and we go, you know, good sense. And that's all the information kind of is there and TNO and so on. So we don't use textbooks so much. And it's a kind of a shame in a way. There's nothing better than sitting there with a heavy tome and flicking the pages and trying to find the secret that you're after, you know. So, so I'm, I'm still, I'm still a massively passionate reader and I haven't converted to the Kindle yet, although I have a Kindle. And and also some of these like audio books and things like that. I, I do feel like there's something tangible uh, or, and great about having something uh, like a, a tangible stack of knowledge, even, even though it's kind of like this connection to an artifact, yeah. you know, you're, you're connecting to something that is uh, sure. like a body of knowledge. It's, it's quite cool. Um, it absolutely. Not, of course, you can't search a book so easily as, as you can. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, a PDF or something like that. So anyway, and, you know, it's actually similar to something that, that you and I have spoken about just recently in that um, sometimes we, we think of uh, progress as being this linear advance of improvement. But there is always something lost when when you think of it as this linear improvement. Yeah, um, yeah. 
you know, like uh, from from thinking about this, uh, the the increased functionality of being able to search through something based on like semantic strings or so like a, a text search mm. through a book, mm. an electronic version of a book is not ever really going to be exactly the same as a as sitting through a textbook. And also oh. this kind of uh, the the things that you read around certain topics or subjects, when you search for them directly, you read about that one topic. And you don't necessarily gain the broader perspective of the things either side. Indeed. Well, that's, that's very much part of where I come from as well in terms of the work. You know, is, um, don't get tunnel vision. You have to keep a very broad outlook on what's going on around you and uh, grab it and make use of it, you know, because it's um, if, if we were all just on, on the railway, railway tracks, and you know, we wouldn't have new flavors created because it would be the repetition of what's happened before. So um yeah yeah we've always got to have that um not i hate the sort of a phrase a helicopter view or whatever but you know stand back a bit sometimes and just have a look at what's around and uh so oh, that could be interesting i'll try and use that material in this flavor you know that you know, rather than rather than get the blinkers on and just go down the, the rail, railway track on it you know yeah exactly and also thinking about because otherwise we would have uh, like one pineapple flavor, one strawberry flavor, one chocolate yeah, flavor, yeah, one, yeah, and yeah. in reality, life is not like that. Uh, life is actually built on uh, on variation, and that's actually absolutely. what piques our interest a bit. So yeah, uh, that's super good. Um, so, I wanted to jump back into like another thing that you were talking about before. So, in terms of your your I guess progression through the industry and how you've gone, you yeah. you've really touched on like loads of different elements of the industry in general, and fulfilled lots of different roles um most commonly i guess as as a, a a creative flavorist but could you explain to people from your point of view uh, what do you see as being a creative flavorist what what is that job yeah <laughs> that's uh sixty four thousand dollars isn't it really you know and i really think it's a case of um Certainly, you know, you've got to have a sort of a single-minded, vision, you know, approach to the whole thing. And um, as I said already, be, be aware of what's what's around you. You know, um, I, I, I think that we have accidents all the time in in, in all in all businesses in all ways, but certainly in the flavour industry, um, accidents are so important. You know, I mean, I, I, that's why I've, you know, you get better as a flavourist the, the more you're doing it because you've had more accidents. You know, that's what I'm mm-hmm. saying. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, one of the best thing, best experiences which really kicked and sparked me into life was this. Um, uh, what, uh, somebody in the lab one day was this back in the back in the seventies. Now going back, so someone was working on a maple flavor in one end of the lab, and somebody on the other end was working on a pineapple flavor. And the smell right in the middle was celery. It was unmistakably celery in, in the middle of the lab. And I said, "Who's working on celery?" And nobody. Maple, pineapple. So I went away and I put together maple lactone and allyl caproids. Bingo! There was a celery flavour. Now, yeah. no no amounts of analysis, you know, uh, would, would would ever give you that result. It's kind of that 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 won't come from a you know, from a GCMS or an MR or that's that's to do with the flavourist flavourist mind, if you like. Mm-hmm. Thinking, what, what on earth's that? You know, what, what happened there? So. And that became a very successful celery flavor for the company back in the day. So things like that, that sort of first part of the sort of answer, I think, on that. Secondly, I would say never, ever say 
to yourself, well, somebody must have already come up with that idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's that, how many times do you hear that? You know, don't yeah. don't even listen to that. If you you know, try it out, see if it works. You know, it's sort of <clears throat> it might sound stupid or ridiculous, and you probably say, well, somebody must have come up with that before. No, they probably yeah. haven't. You know, sometimes the most simplest of things are staring in the face, and you you would then assume that well, somebody's done that. Surely, not always, and actually, not often. So. Yeah, and there is, as you mentioned, there's this serendipitous like uh, kind of opportunity that you put yourself in by having, I guess, trained and learned how to describe and detect certain things. So you you find yourself as a flavorist, I guess, like noticing things that maybe other people wouldn't necessarily notice, yeah, or you're yeah. you're you're consciously uh, cognizant of these these different um, sensory qualities in your surroundings that you wouldn't have been before. So related to so so kind of related to like uh, exactly as you you're like um, you're uh, detecting this celery note and then then immediately afterwards trying to figure out how that how that's possible yeah. you know where yeah. did, where does this come from and realizing that it part partly is coming from a pineapple partly coming from a maple then you're trying to piece those things together to mm. figure out how yeah, can yeah. you recreate this kind of experience that's sure. awesome yeah. yeah. And also, like, you know, I was, I was working on something, well, I forget what it was now, and I ended up, you know, you, you end up washing the beakers down the sink at the end of the day, mm-hmm. and the smell from the sink was garden peas, you know, it's a really like, wow, this is like garden peas. So I was trying to remember what, what I'd been yeah, using. What was in the bottom? What, what was in the beakers? Yeah. No, it was it, you know, it was like this, <laughs> that, you know yeah, it was a melon flavour maybe, I don't know, I can't remember. So anyway, of course, same thing, I, I got these materials I thought I, I remembered using, put them together, and we had a lovely garden pea flavour. So um, that's that kind of is really important, I think. Coming back to the question, though, I mean, how, how, what, what, what makes a flavourist? Um, you know, really, you get to, you've got to know your raw materials. You've got to work with those mm-hmm. raw materials every day, smelling, tasting when you have time, describing, keeping a log, Start yourself off with the go, go along the shelf and you pick up the first five materials, smell them, uh, put you know, uh, take time to have a think about what 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 could they be used in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Make notes, make yourself a database, because that database is personal to you. Because how I how I would see um, ethylbutyrate might be different to, to the next next person seeing ethylbutyrate. They could describe it describe it as as, as pineapple buttery I could describe it as cheese and so you need to get these your personal thoughts into that database of yours then the trick is to make this subjective discussion or uh, comment mm-hmm. into an objective flavor that is going to please you know a million people yeah yeah exactly you, you like try and focus on your market you, you yeah. go from subjective to objective and Doing that successfully is really where, you know, let's say whatever you would say is the good flavorist or whatever, it would, would be able to achieve that. Um, we do we do put a little bit of ourselves into every flavor development, I think, as well. It's sort of, um, it becomes like a, like a baby almost. If you think, if you work for a long time on something and there's the end result. And of course it's brilliant because you made it. It's absolutely mm. fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Gotta be a winner, this one. And you present it to the panel and the and it completely bombs out and nose dives. You almost want to go in a corner and cry, I think. <laughs> yeah, you definitely have to have you that's just been trashed by this panel, you know, and it's sort of 
you've got to rise above that. You've got to accept that as a flavorist. You well, when you when you finally when you when you're presenting your celery flavor and uh 45% of the of the panelists say no this actually this actually smells and tastes like uh pineapple and maple. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're like, "Well, exactly. funny that. Funny exactly. that." <clears throat> yeah, so you, you you we we do it as a personal thing, but we can't take it personally. That sounds like a like an oxymoron almost, but yeah. We've got to get get ourselves into that flavor that we made. And then accept the fact that not everyone's going to accept it or give it the thumbs up. Yeah, kind of that, that I am me broad, and my broad shoulders. Don't, yeah, broad shoulders. Don't go in the yeah. corner and cry. Just to <laughs> learn from that and say, okay, what can I do to make it right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and kind of learning from feedback because that's, yeah. I guess, a, a I mean, massive and skill. And yeah. Encourage positive criticism. You know, mm -hmm. I don't, if somebody says, oh, that's rubbish. You've got to sort of ignore that and say, well, hang on, what do you mean by that? Would you why? Like, yeah. Why? Would you like mm -hmm. it more like this yeah. way or would you like it less like this? What is it that's wrong with it? You know? So you've got to really approach it. Everything's got to, you've got to keep a positive outlook. It's and it takes a long time, you know. We we end up like farmers really, sowing seeds and mm -hmm. then in two years' time, maybe we will we'll see the crop, you know, at this. And it's a bit like Mendel and his peas sometimes when we think of uh, flavors these days or your your personal flavor library the things that yeah. you made in the past mm. is that the things you make in the future will always be influenced by the things you've made in the past because yeah, that becomes like that. a that becomes yeah. like a stick in the sand like you, yeah. That, yeah. you, you always strive to do something different mm. but uh, <clears throat> in the end you know a, a vanilla fla a vanilla flavor is going to contain vanillin and um you know it, it's, it, that's a kind of a, a bit of a saying maybe i don't know really i think as well you have to be patient you have to learn your craft and be patient and um also i would say outside of work without being a bore mm. um, be interested about smells and tastes that are around you you know if you're in a restaurant um, or in the market and you can smell something what is that you know that reminds me of xyz and try try to associate smells with something you know if it's like um, I say to people sometimes in training, you know, we say, well, if, if it smells like your grand your grandfather's wardrobe to you, write it down. Yeah. Write that down because that means something to you. Yeah. And you will yeah. always be able to spot it. Yeah. You know? And it will give you the same emotional connection yeah, to that, exactly. so to that the, particular the, the flavor language generated within yourself, which means something to you. Of course, in a panel situation, <laughs> you say, well, it's like my grandfather's <laughs> wardrobe. Blimey, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, and if if only you could take them back to those experiences. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I bring I bring the wardrobe in tomorrow. You never saw. <laughs> yeah, I always notice that, like when I'm using like my own personal database of like sensory descriptors and things, yeah. I have loads of like um, personal experience that, that connects me to. Yeah, things. no, that's, you have you know, to do that. You know, yeah. your grandfather's wardrobe. I had um, my my great grandmother's downstairs bathroom um, for um, what was it? Um, linalar acetate. Really? And I don't know why, but it was like it must have lavender. been like some kind of some kind of like perfume or fragrance it's, that they used. It'd be lavender. Yeah. It were more like bergamot. It was oh, it was right. like okay. that, that yeah, strange yeah. bergamot right. thing. Yeah. But amazing, yeah, it was really really cool. So I think one of the the big points that we've spoken about so far, and that's super important, especially for for people just starting out in the in the industry yeah. or starting out as a career flavorist, is that 
that you need to really write up everything, but you also need to record your personal records of things because yes. an experience becomes kind of nailed down. Write, everything, you... write everything down, everything, yeah. you know, even today, I, you know, I, I, of course, I'm, you know, computer is everything now in the world, but I still have a lab book, which I write, I write everything down, mm. every day, you know, with a date and a reference, I know what it is. So you know, there's a develop, it's a development book and, um, there's a certain coding which we use, which we use as a development book. So I go to that if that sample is in the lab with the development code, I know exactly which page it's on and where it is in the book. So yeah, write everything down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And something that that can be found later on, because I yeah. guess we're both <laughs> aware of this as well. Some things that happen serendipitously uh, are they they're amazing because they kind of like bring Absolutely. bring the job to life. But equally, they can be the most frustrating thing ever if you can recall a particularly great experience or flavor that you've created, but can't find the formulation again. Exactly. And then you're creating blank. And don't don't write on bits of scrap paper. Yeah. Or uh, yeah, like what what uh, so yeah. but my. Uh, what my initial, my first trainer and mentor, Danny Kind, uh, was always mentioning, like the, the back of the fag packet thing. Yeah. Um, you ri you're writing things on what, whatever piece of paper you can find. <laughs> but how can you ever find that piece of paper again? You know, you have a book, a lab book, that's it, you know? Yeah. Or if you yeah. don't like to write, I had a, I had a young guy who, did, who didn't want to write anything down. He used, it was, it was, of course, he was, you know, a youngster who used his computer for everything. So, yeah. Well, but you, I, Whatever works for you, I guess. Yeah. So some people are, I guess, more uh, comfortable with those kinds of things. And and as yeah. to, as we spoke about, as tools advance, traditionalist, I suppose. You know. <laughs> yeah, I pen and paper. It, well, it's it's good to write because you, I think you 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 express yourself in, in actually using handwriting sometimes, which you can't do mm. on a keyboard. And then it's a, it's a way of of uh, protecting your own personal IP. In my case, because my handwriting is so terrible. <laughs> have a go, have a go. See if you can read my. See if you can read my descriptors. I know. You've been a doctor. Been a doctor. I was going to go back to um, kind of your time with Vim um, and maybe where you, where you went, like progress wise with your career, yeah, because. Yeah. I, You've worked for a number of, of big flavor houses, but I guess also small flavor houses, and then get to kind of where you are now and mm. where you've been for a number of years. Well, I was um, you know, I was I was a Brombra for for a few years in, in my early days, you know, and um, um, Wim was great because he he was um, okay, he he was a, he was a, he was a one off really. He was, he was a unique guy. But we had um, the early days. We had uh, gas chromatography next door. With Howard Preston and um, Pat Middlemas, Pat, no, Pat Mitchell, she was called. Yeah, and it was no mass spec, so we, she would be running the the GC, and I would be with my nose stuck on the end of this GC with the copper tube coming out the side of the GC, uh, at, at sort of uh, two hundred and fifty degrees. So I was I was always always end up going home with blisters all on my nose, you know, from smell, smelling this damn thing. And of course, she would write on the chromatogram what the what, what the comments were. So then we had to go and try and figure out from the lab, from my raw material collection, what what was the what were we were we smelling? So mm -hmm. that, the nose was the MS in a way. So you, it really was a steep learning curve on the characteristics of materials, where you'd be getting this flavour coming off, and I think, oh, it smells like um, leather, sort of leathery smell. Right? Mm -hmm. What have we got that's leathery? You know, then you go to the shelf and you think. No, it's not that. It could be that. Yeah, it was really um, 
wonderful and challenging times really you know and um, it's a cool opportunity as well because it, uh, it gives you like the opportunity to separate those things so just for for i guess some people that are listening that maybe uh, are are thinking about this how it how it works in a like a, a tempo temporal setting is that yeah. um uh, gcms um and gcms is like a gas chromatography mass spectrometry but the ms part of that only came about later so as you're talking about okay. now, sometimes yeah. we're talking often about um, GCO and this uh, gas chromatography olfactometry as yeah. a as a separate port, but also as an advance. And yeah. where, whereas in fact that happened that was, beforehand. That, that was before MS. That was yeah. that was our identification tool. You know? I mean the quantitation as well was quite hysterical. So it was a chart recorder, a paper chart recorder, and they had to cut out the peaks with scissors and weigh yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah, that's you, mental. I remember that. You get the uh, the, the 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 amount. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so, the so that, to me, that I always found very interesting how th that was like a, a speedy approach to do that, because I guess you could always integrate uh, the equation of the line to get the area beneath it. But yeah. all of those kinds of things is like maybe that was it. It's advanced and faster to do that now because you have like scientific calculation. It's yeah. just the plot chart record. So yeah, then integrators came along, and I was like, "Wow, you know, this is the future." So yeah, yeah, and you've you've kind of been able to plot all of these things along. You've kind of been on the journey. Quite, you've been on that quite starting, really. Yeah. So um, yeah, I don't know if I, I would have thought Howard Preston is no longer with us, but he was a he was one of the pioneers, really, in this genius. You know, awesome. And, um, so I was there, and then um, linked with Unilever, of course, and we had links with. Uh, with Colworth House, and uh, I was mm -hmm. I spent some time going down to Colworth, uh, working on um, strawberry and uh, raspberry. Um, those times were, were amazing because it was also, you know, I, I was on the sort of longer term R and D, so we we had months to work on flavour. <laughs> you know, it's it kind of now now the industry has hours to work on a flavour. <laughs> Yeah. And um, the, the world has changed completely in that respect. We had um, a situation where, you know, with, with Unilever, they wanted to make the best raspberry flavour ever. So they, they had a helicopter fly down from, from Scotland, mm. freshly picked raspberries that morning, and they were taken down to Colworth, Colworth House and analysed, and then we had the results come out of that. So Dave Baines will, will be very, very, remember that completely. I think he was part of that flavor group um who, who's doing all that work and um i'm not sure anything ever came of it but there you go it's uh but it was really really mind-blowing stuff at the time you know and um, yeah and the, the guys in unilever in, in holland were coming up with these um weird mixtures that was they were sampling to us and they were really meaty you know sort of incredibly meaty uh, blends of things going on and I think they even called them, they didn't know what to call them, so they just called them Does Does Smell D U S M E Double. I remember it vividly. And these were, in fact, I think, although it's never been confirmed, these were the early um, reactions of furanones with H2S, you know, to give the, uh, the meat yeah. to a reaction, which would, I mean, I, I use the expression about standing on the shoulders of giants, but. What went before was it was quite astonishing, really. Without GCMS, without the the facilities we have today, and you know, this is wet chemistry, and um, just amazing the people who've gone before us, really, doing this stuff. It kind of makes it like important, I guess, to also 
that's why I find this this kind of podcast and the, these kind of discussions super valuable mm. because it allows you to maybe like uh, connect all the things together and uh, find out where things have come from as well. And like you were mentioning there about the wet chemistry, you definitely remember that for the rest of your life. You know, yeah. at, what, once you're part of that example and that demonstration yeah, yeah. of yeah, yeah, seeing yeah. something something play out, Incredible. it means that it's with you forever. So I'm guessing like one of those those compounds were like the the methylfurantyl and those kind of meaty compounds. Well, they were they were they were reaction mixtures, of course, because yeah. you know, you're throwing together sort of furaniol and norfuraniol and H2S and maltol, yeah, you end up with a whole bunch of stuff. So I think that was the early days of that. If you look at some of the papers published around that time from Unilever, um, don't quote me. I think it was Mr. Is it uh, Van Alden? Van Alden, I think, and that team were doing this work. And then later, or in, in parallel, the guys at PFW were doing the same kind of work. Yeah, uh, I, I later I later found out. You know, I mean, there was another very clever company in the, in those days, PFW. You know, I have a lot of respect for 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 a few companies in in, in this in this way. You know, Fermanic, I think, have been you know genius at linking research with commercial realization of, of flavors you know and we had um i it's no secret now you know we were trying to duplicate the fermanish raspberry flavor mm-hmm. yeah. in the 70s and could we get it right we were in, <laughs> in and out we had to flip in that we were just no no taste it no not right you know and so it went on, and then we realized in, after a while that we what what, what we were missing was the damascenone, which mm-hmm. hadn't, been, hadn't been released or even talked about. It, it was hush. It was that captive compound it kind of captive, idea. Yeah. You know. Then they released a blend called damascenia, which limited the use of the damascenone because otherwise it would become a perfume. So uh-huh. very very clever clever people. Yeah, oh wow wow so it so the original thing was so the product i guess that they released was called damascenia that's right it was oh wow and it was that the same molecule? The fragrance and flavor i think but yeah. you couldn't use it really in a raspberry to the level that you needed it um yeah. because it would be then become very floral and perfumery so yeah yeah <clears throat> wow fascinating and it's amazing how like uh some of these captive molecules at the beginning it could have kind of felt a bit like uh like a race to patent you know you're you're racing to patent these yeah, new yeah, these yeah. new things that you're discovering in food in order sure. to then make those captive molecules totally and also you know we, we're running the, G, the G, gc on this kind of flavor and i'm sure we would have seen a peak for this damascene mm. and smelled it and just dis, dis, and disregarded it because it wasn't that interesting if you yeah. take damascene on on its own it's really not such an interesting molecule yeah if you put it with other molecules, then it, it, it somehow it, it brings the whole thing to life, you know. So uh, obviously, yeah. the berries in particular, like uh, it, yeah, it definitely has this kind of like it, uh, it suddenly transforms it. It's it's really bizarre. It's a very strange thing. And then you go on to you know apple and peach and other other flavors with damascino. It's just it's incredible magical effect. Yeah, I find it actually like particularly kind of magical or like a, a surprising as well is that when you smell like a, like a, a high concentration of damascino in, in on its own yeah it's you wouldn't necessarily connect yeah. that to some of those brown flavors those may yeah, things, totally uh, right, like yeah. like coffee and things like that but it can right. fully transform a flavor yeah Com- completely right yes it does it's a, one of those uh, it's like a chameleon molecule yeah and do you know do, do you can you I guess recall any any others that 
kind of maybe act in a similar way that you know of? Had that sort of, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, thiamenthone is, is classic. Yeah, for yeah. Um, because it's, um, it goes from a whole palette of range of profiles, depending on what it's with, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you can't even detect it, but even by modern GCMS, and you can't, you can't even detect it, but you can smell it's there. The flavorist still has a job to do <clears throat> because you can smell it. And it's, you know, if you could look at a mango flavor and suddenly you're thinking, what's missing in this mango? It's really not quite right. And then, you, uh, you know, you have, you, you, you wave a smelling strip of thiamantha over the flavor <laughs> and it's completely, there it is. Wow, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. Wonderful. It's wonderful. It is. I'm. I'm. I'm thinking before actually. In, in October this year, I'll have been in the industry fifty years, which is oh wow. Five and what, uh, so, but but are you are you awarding yourself with a um a kind of a celebratory pen? I think so. Yes. Yes. I think I should. Yeah. It'll probably well, because be, that's be the a, next a thing I was going to. Probably, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I used to be a plastic cup. Yeah, one of those ones. <laughs> uh, no because i was actually thinking about this we so you you obviously you were at uh working for unilever and with unilever on a number of different mm. things and colworth house is an imp- amazing place like it's it's awesome to have kind of that that campus feel around lots of different uh, exactly. food science and technology yeah, totally yeah i mean when, when i when i started fnf projects um, back in 2006 it's re- really weird to say but i was looking for, for a lab facility and um Colworth were renting out space so I ended up back in Colworth house oh wow 2006 wow, wow. so it was really like a full circle thing you know so that that was the start of FNF projects was in back in Colworth house in a, in a lab up in the main block in the old block <laughs> yeah yeah very cool so uh, okay so FNF projects is a, like a big thing that I, I do want to like talk to you about more like how you got onto it and all of that but yeah. before we get there some of your other experience in terms of working for big flavor houses. I, yeah. I know that you worked for, for Fruiterum for a number of years. And did, but did you work for, for others before that? Yes, I, really from, from FIL, I, you know, I had this, this chap called Mike Tyrrell. Oh, yeah. Heard You've heard of him, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he would often come up to Bromber on projects and we got to know each other and everything. And anyway, he, 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 he stole me away to Chiswick to, uh, to Lotier. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, which uh, eventually be, was was taken over by Fluorescent, became Simrise and all that story, you know. But I yeah. had, a few, had a few good years in Chiswick, and that was interesting times, you know. With the, and I ended up from there actually going out to Indonesia to work on the Kretek t- t- tobacco uh, work back in. The, oh yeah, cool. Back in the, the very, I think it might have been about nineteen seventy nine or eighty. Yeah, that was just whoa! It's incredible. And was that was that before the before the advent of the hunters list? Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah you could they, they put anything in it. You know, it was just yeah. uh, it was um, a massive massive challenge. Uh, we didn't really um, clinch any significant uh, commercial result from it, but it's what an experience it was for me. It was incredible. You know. Yeah. The first one of the other I, things. One yeah. of the other things I was going to ask you is, do you know, having having worked and known Mike Turrell for so long, do you feel like there will ever be a day in your life that, that you will appreciate his company? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I really hope he listens to this because he'll appreciate that. <laughs> We're still in touch, you know, over WhatsApp with the jokes. He sends me jokes on WhatsApp, you know. So. Yeah. 
not there's not many you could actually pass on to other people but you know so. yeah he actually sent me um a, a merry christmas card so I, I do need to get back to him because i've only received it in january that's good and if he's listening i hope you have a a healthy 2023 mike you know you're struggling with health and that but all the rest agreed agreed um and so that, that brings us up onto like a, a wonderful topic uh, worthy of much discussion before we get onto, I guess, FNF projects is that you've, you've definitely had some uh, involvement for a long time in the BSF. And I'm yeah. chatting to my fellow um, past um, president. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, from in the Lotier days in Chiswick, then it was Mike, Mike, who was very much at the start of the BSF, got yeah. me over and got, we went to the meetings and so forth. And, uh, uh, I then, you know, took took on the uh, duties on the committee, on the council, and so on, and ended up as as president by default. It was because the the then pra- uh, vice president stood down, so there was no it was, uh, Barry Ingle was president, and I forget the guy who was vice president, Peter Thorburn, I think, who um, decided he couldn't continue, so I had to step in and I took it on. So. Without an apprenticeship, I was straight in almost as the president. So, yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah and uh, I enjoyed my time. You know, and I think, you know, it's, it's great to see it continuing like this. And I think, uh, actually looking at the council now, I think it should be it should be called the European Flavours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Society well, of Flavours, I think. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, there's, there's nothing in the constitution which says everybody has to be British. So, uh, yeah, not at all. And and equally, I feel like it might be, yeah. yeah, and it might be in a way a kind of a disservice to our membership, who's who's clearly global. And even even um, having the European Society of Flavors might be um, an artificial limitation because we've even got members on the council that are the base in the US, um, and obviously looking to expand our reach a bit more. And a reach in terms of like how to offer value and engagement opportunities to people within the industry. And yeah. I, I hope that this kind of conti- continues long after me, long after uh, mm. lots of people on the on the, the council now. But like as as you're obviously aware as well, you saw me first rock up to my first council meeting as the the well, I would I was gonna say bright eyed, bushy tailed, but I was probably <laughs> just meek and mild because that's my my uh, raison d'etre. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> um and kind of seen how things have developed so it's pretty cool what can you what i'm always super interested in Mm. is is what was it like in those early days you know like chatting outside the burlington bertie after a lecture and and how can we kind of get more of that going yeah, it's a, it's a shame in a way because you're right. You're burning, you know, we had the Savile Row Scientific Society Lecture Theatre, where most of the meetings were held, and over across across the road was the Burlington Bertie Pub. So, in fact, most of the meetings were held in the pub, to be honest. Um, which is no, not something to look back on with particular pride, I suppose. But um, <laughs> at least it was very, fun. I think that you know there, there was. There's never any confidentialities given given away. Obviously, the, the industry we're working is 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 very confidential, and um, the BSF was a, was a strange beast because you had, you had all these competitors all standing in the same room talking to each other, and uh, a lot of overseas people at the time didn't understand how that worked because how can you keep you know keep secrets and confidentialities and everything else? Well, we did. We just enjoyed talking about the industry in general. And um, yeah, you can help each other out with supplies of raw materials, you know, how mm-hmm. to try this person. Uh, 
you know, and it was a it was a great time really. Um, I think so. Sort of... How can we get back to that? I think the symposia that we've had before lockdown and everything else mm. was starting to make you know really become again you know a good good meeting point for everybody to be involved with. I think the online thing has been brilliant during the whole pandemic and everything else. It's been, it's been quite amazing. And I'm, I'm glad that the, the BSF has grabbed, grabbed that technology and really used it to its, to its full because, you know, that we, we, can't all, we can't all get down to Reading on a Thursday night to, mm-hmm. to go to a lecture. You know, I think those, that perhaps those days are a little bit in the past, maybe. I don't know, but um, mm. uh, it's not for me to say. But I think a combination of this, you know, and maybe a once or twice a year meeting symposium kind of uh, approach would, would work yeah so that's actually something p- partially that i was thinking about and like that we have we have trialed in the past some some hybrid uh meetings and hybrid lectures mm-hmm. and things like that and they work to a certain extent but uh, they're all there's always like a, a a significant justification that you need to make in order to travel um let's say two hours for a meeting that's only ever going to last one hour exactly and, you, you need you need the companies to support it mm-hmm. Yeah. Been the same old story really you need to give companies need to give people time off in the afternoon to get down to london or whatever it is for the meeting and so perhaps in a way is it for the bsf to do another mail shot or marketing campaign to companies mm, yeah, perhaps yeah, say, perhaps. you know these are the advantages of being a member your mm. staff you and your company will benefit and your staff will benefit by being a member for the following reasons so Certainly, I would I would look at it from that way as well. Yeah, and also, also kind of getting access to the historical record, which is is obviously only building up over time, but it, it's yeah. massively important and it's super valuable to kind of refer to uh, past lectures and past like recorded content and and equally the news uh, new scientists, you know, new scientists and what was news and views is jam-packed new, new full flavors. of seriously great things new flavors yeah new flavors yeah yeah what did i say i called it new scientist oh well that's great as well but it's not published by us <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, so well, yeah so uh, that, that, that was where i mean i i did a few years at lotier in chiswick and then um Givaudan came to me and said would you want to work with kevin freeman at the time he said you want to work for us so yeah I thought, well I you know, it's one of those. I think flavors do do move around, uh, move around. Not every not every few months, you know, but mm-hmm. every yeah. every few years or so. I think, um, yeah, there's a, there's a reason to do that. I think you need to f- freshen things up and see see a different point of view on things. Yeah, and I guess get get new perspectives. And again, new we're all kind of new driven. materials, you know, new, new technologies. That you yeah. weren't aware of before, and you think, "Wow, I could use this to make, you know, a better apple flavor or whatever." And um, it's kind of like a little discussed maybe quality of flavors that you're seeking new experience and actually changing companies is is a is a way of doing that as well. Yeah, yeah. It, I think all of this, you know, the, the the main problem problem or whatever is we have to deal with some, with people sometimes, and you know, it's. It, if we just had the flavor work to do, that would be fine, you know. But then you <laughs> yeah. have to you have to learn as a flavorist how to be, um, uh, in, you know, within an industry, within with a company structure, how to how to work with other people, you know, in, 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 with different um, with different access to grind, for want of a better expression, you know. So yeah, 
your expect your what you want out of the, the project is not what a salesperson wants out of the project. It's not what the production person wants or the accountant wants. You know? Yeah, you become the, the kind of the balancing. People don't want to buy one raw material. That's it. <laughs> yeah, let's <laughs> rationalize the portfolio. Uh, the accountants awesome. only only want to pay a pound for it, and um, <laughs> production. You know, they, they they don't want to have to mix and filter and do all that. You know, gosh, no, you can't do that. So you've got to look really look at it from other people's because they're all part of that machine which makes it work. So yeah. it's no good. You know, you're using raw materials which you know can only be picked on a full moon in Peru. <laughs> yeah there's something i was talking about before but that's you know, that's the point yeah you have to be pr practical and realistic you know and don't put everything in the kitchen sink into a flavor mm -hmm. best flavors are the ones with the shortest amounts of materials which give the biggest best results okay so more more bang for your buck if you like so i've always kind of had a discipline around what, what i do is say if you're getting into the twenties and thirties, mm -hmm. as a number of raw materials, you ain't you are you're not doing it. You you know, in some cases, let's say tropical flavors or these mm -hmm. complex flavors. Yeah, okay, sometimes. But if you know, if, if you're making a banana flavor with twenty five ingredients and thirty ingredients, you know, you, you you're not doing it right, really. No, because it's unnecessary. You're like, well, well, necessary. maybe not unnecessary, but like, is it driving? value in the same way as you think it is you can, probably you, not you know, rather than those you know six different esters you can use two and it have the same effect yeah you know, just try so spend more time on balancing i guess yeah exactly you know it's not it's not impressive it doesn't impress anybody you say look at this flavor i've made and it's sort of 50 ingredients and yeah with like 15 go, different wow, intermediates no, they're not they're gonna go <laughs> what have you done there you know so yeah yeah keep it yeah. simple Keep, Keep it simple, simple, stupid. The problem yeah. with that is, of course, it becomes very easy to duplicate, you know, or easier to duplicate. So yeah. we can always throw a few curveballs into the flavor. You know, reaction flavors are always very good as a as a as a as a as a smog as a smoke smoke screen for yeah. uh, for analysis. Um, so sugar, one of the one of the things to, I wanted sugars tend to mess up analysis as well, that kind of thing, you know, but. I wonder, do you know when we were talk, we've talk, spoken about a few things now that kind of aim me towards this, but were you were you ever involved in kind of like a flavor trek? So, uh, so some field trip or a trip to a specific growing region uh, or something? I know Givaudan did this um, flying over the Amazon with a, on a hot air balloon or something they did it with picking flowers. I don't know. I didn't get that. I didn't get that gig. <laughs> have you <laughs> no i was actually thinking about it as a way of of making uh like personal interaction um achievable for a lot of people in the industry now so for the bsf to maybe organize like a field trip or something oh, I like think that would be a great idea i, I think yeah. that'd be a super idea and i would certainly get personally get involved you know in that and, and take take part in something like that something something actually i suggested <laughs> Sorry, yeah, me, me, me. Um, <laughs> That's um, what it's about. Some years ago, and it kind of never got through. But you know, I thought, well, if even to go to citrus production in Spain or something like that would be really helpful to for people yeah. learning about what, what, what's involved, you know. And uh, I, I would totally support that as an idea. I think that's great. Yeah, yeah, especially in terms of like the the citrus story in particular, because it's it's the, like the complexity but knowing about the background story really gives you uh the opportunity to to uh, kind of highlight the selling 
potential of a new flavor you know so mm. when you're making a new orange flavor being mm. able to tell the backstory of of where yeah, that came yeah. from how it exists why it exists yeah, went, is amazing it. yeah yeah totally um you know even not so far off, you know you've got lavender fields in hitching where they yeah. have central oil processing and so forth i think but uh yeah so i think yeah definitely that would be a, a great thing to do and also we could make it uh, i guess a bit of uh like a like a series a series of things that people can sign on to this one or that one or yeah and yeah i think that would be a good opportunity for yeah. for people to kind of get involved and also get that uh, like interpersonal relationship again because yeah. if you're going away for at least a few days then it, it makes the trip worthwhile and it's easier yeah, to you justify you make social connections as well and everything yeah. else which is what we're all about we're, the, you know this is this industry is a, it's really about personal connections between people you know i think yeah I think we we have a sort of thing about you know what what, what makes a good flavor, and they say well the one that sells. So well mm. yeah, it kind of is, but also how does it sell? You know, I think the sales role is to open up the the doors to allow that flavor to be introduced, and then you know it's a it's a it's a, it's not selling from like a, a catalog really. No no no, and and I'm, I think I'm wandering I... now. I realize I'm, I'm I'm meandering around. So yeah. <laughs> Oh, no, no, so am I. But that's the whole point of this. I think yeah. it's about adventure. <laughs> um, yeah. Because that's one of the things that I, I like to think about as well is that uh, I, I've often found, not, pers- not only personally, but also from other people's perspectives and experience, that um, the minute the flavorist is able to get involved and have a relationship with a customer, that's the point at which the story starts to be told. Because you're making this flavor for them but you're making it based on your interpretation of the questions they've asked of what you want this to was, deliver. This was very much part of my, my life as a flavorist. I'll be honest. I, I spent a lot of time traveling mm. uh, as a flavorist, technical support, whatever to the local people out to, to, to Asia and far East. And uh, yes, I, 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 I had a lot of days on airplanes and, uh, traveling in, the, in that and also in, 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 the, in the US and yeah I spent more time away than at home at one point so yeah. um, but there's a great way to learn about the local what, what they're actually after you know this thing with Indonesia um, I was, it was on Kretek cigarettes which contain mm-hmm. clothes which is very yeah. strange but um, and they kind of crackle they crackle and set fire to your shirt or you're smoking <laughs> and they had this word called guri which is like uh, the Indonesian local word, which means tasty. And you can't, I, I try to figure out by, by presenting certain flavor materials to these guys, is, is this guri? No, no. Is this guri? No. no. You, they couldn't really give me a, a feeling. It just means very tasty. We, you know, we don't really have that word in the West. Yeah. To them, in Indonesia, it really means something with, with food. If yeah. the food is going to be good, it has to be guri. And that's an amazing thing of like how how you see the separation of like language and yeah. how that's related to region regional appreciation of food and flavors totally, as well. Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, okay, so yeah, super cool. Um, okay, so would you would you mind telling me how the decision came about to start FNF projects? Can you give me an introduction to uh, FNF well, projects and yeah. I think really, I so I'm from Givaudan, I just to finish the little tr- the, the story, oh, yeah. I ended up with Pauls and White's International um, at Bletchley, uh, working in the seasonings division, the Glentham division. So that was a, 
uh, quite a, a, a steep learning curve as well, or a, a bit of a, di a diversion, let's say. The seasonings being, of course, the flavour creation from the top note side, but with everything else going on as well. And um, that was a challenge. Then from there, I carried on into back into the flavour flavor mainstream within within the company. And then I, I ended up eventually with, with Fruiterome after that, after being there Bletchley for 11 years. And, uh, and then um, uh, it was, you know, I just thought, well, I kind of would like to work for myself. I think mm -hmm. I've yeah. got to the point now where um, I have an idea for a business. Because from day one, if you think back to the FIL days, and we were trying to figure out what was in that raspberry flavor, and all the way through my career, we've always been trying to figure out, A, what's in nature? What, what is mm -hmm. it in nature that makes it taste or smell the way it does? And what is in flavors in the marketplace? That you know, what, what is it that's in them? You know, it's one of those. So I, I actually thought, put that together as a a kind of a, a business model, which was an analytical approach coupled with flavor creations together, but the engine being the, the analysis. So mm -hmm. um, in, in my sort of latter days with, with Fruiterome, I ended up working with GC and GCMS. And then um, I thought, well, I'm going to take this on as, as a service to the industry. Because no matter where you go in the flavor industry, everybody's got too many projects. Everybody's yeah. too busy, you know. So I thought, well, okay, maybe I can help everybody and do, do what I can and bring some of my experiences to their project list mm -hmm. in a completely confidential, obviously, confidential yeah. way. I mean, it, it has to be, you know, otherwise I have no, I have no business if it's not confidential. So, and it's a bespoke um, uh, confidential service to, for the industry, really. And um, this is where I still find myself now. Um, 15, 16 years later, it's um, there's people still coming back for more. So I think it was probably not a bad idea. So yes, I'm running, I'm running GC Maspecs and I'm running, I have a the, the free the flavor creation lab with a very, very large collection of raw materials and spectra to, to go mm -hmm. with that, of course. And um, I, I have done quite a bit of training as well as a company, although mm -hmm. that's really not at the forefront now of what I want to do and, and more to do with um, you know the, the flavor analysis flavor and fragrance analysis I, I branched out into fragrance yeah it's um, part of the process as well and that's been quite successful not so much fragrance creation uh, but fl fragrance analysis um, again fas fascinating stuff so yeah yeah it's and super cool it's really good say, if you say well are you going to retire you know I say well no, I'm not really. Why would I retire? Because I'm still, I still, you know, without sounding too too glib about it, I still, I still, am passionate about this, this business and find it fascinating. For every day is a every day is a school day, as they say. You know? Yeah. So I was going to ask you: is is do you do you get the opportunity to work on more fringe type projects now than you did when you were working at a big flavor house? I think there's a curve on that. In the earlier days, we would do whatever we, you know, sort of, I'm going to say whatever we wanted. No. I, mm -hmm. I always carved out Friday afternoon as creation time. Yeah. So no matter what was going on, um, it, it would, it, it would often, often coincide with uh, having to go to the pub with Roger the Vicky for, for Friday lunch, you know. 
you'd come back and you'd have um, Friday afternoon flavour creation time. So, and I did things there, like uh, I made a lettuce flavour once. But what was the use? What was the use? No, of nobody, the nobody asked for a lettuce flavour. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was just doing that, smelling materials. Oh, it smells like lettuce. That's quite interesting. So I, I developed it. So anybody who ever came in to see us as a customer, yeah. they, would, they, would, they would have to smell this lettuce flavour. It, <laughs> it, it just gave um, quite an interesting spin and a creative way to people to say, wow, this is quite interesting. This company's doing some weird stuff. So that was then. Then I think... Once dare, dare I dare I use the word retailers? I suppose you know. Once they really got their 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 claws on the on the on the business on the food on the food industry, mm-hmm. squeezed it, squeezed it, and squeezed it, and squeezed it. That passed down the chain, and I think you know. Then nobody had really any more time or or or, or budget for doing this kind of thing. So it became very much we need you know we need this lemon flavor and we need it. Yeah. For, two pound a kilo and it's going to go into this this soft drink and that's it don't come at me with all your fancy stuff i don't don't want to know you know so it it became a little bit mundane but having gone through that whole cycle and that's been most of my career really i would say coming to where i am now with fnf projects i'm i'm now back doing that friday afternoon yeah yeah like full uh, circle approach to things and i'm sort of chucking a few things together I think that was quite interesting you know i might show that to customers and so yeah it's, it's gone it's gone a little bit full circle really which is quite nice yeah. and that's also i guess the point of like when people ask you uh are you going to retire in in a weird way you've kind of gone back to appreciate the passion for this this job and hobby you know yeah. uh having it having something that can pay your bills and has paid your bills and given sure. you a wonderful career yeah. Yeah. but that isn't very, very is a hobby. Phase, by the way <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, but I, mean, I, I can't i can't think really what, what i would do i mean i can't play golf every day you know and uh, i have other pastimes such as music and art but you know they kind that, of combine that comes and goes you know so mm-hmm. Well, maybe I'll spend more time on them, but I'll always continue with the flavor and fragrance uh, adventure. I think you know, for as, yeah. long as, my, as long as my nose and my tongue and my ears and eyes keep going, I can carry on. Really, why not? You know. Uh, so from so from your knowledge of like how the industry has changed, how your role within the industry has changed as well, yeah. you've got like a massive backlog of uh, all of the these different reference and data points that can help you project where we potentially are going. Where where do you see the flavor and fragrance industry in the next like five, 10, 15 years? I think in, in, in sort of broad brush terms, I think from strength to strength, because the 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 the, the trends now, I hate the word trends, you see it published mm. all the time. And what's a trend? The trend you know doesn't exist until it actually happens. Yeah. Um, but I think really what we're looking at now with the, with the marketplace, we're looking at plant-based foods, we're looking at vegan foods, we're looking at no, no low alcohol, we're looking at no sugar, low sugar. We need flavors more than ever to yeah. satisfy yeah. this surge in demand, or you know, let's say switch of direction of, of, of the food industry and the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, we often say it would go full circle. We always used to say, "Oh, here we go again." They want natural flavors. 
mm. you've got a new marketing person coming and they want natural flavors. And then they realize <laughs> natural flavors are too expensive and they don't work as well. So yeah. we go back to where we were. So it goes full circle. That's not the case with now, I don't think. I think I think vegan and plant-free are here to stay. I think reduction and or removal of alcohol from, from beverages is here to stay. And um by Jove, we need flavors to, to, to do the work for those for us, you know. Yeah. Uh, you look at pea protein and other sources of protein, it's kind of they they need some work or flavor work to make them palatable, you know. And uh, so I hope that I hope that you realize the value in the the short five-point list that you just gave in terms of the the near future of flavor and fragrance, and particularly flavor, because I think what you've just highlighted is uh, every comp every flavor house's strategy for the next five years yeah, um, really. focus on these points yeah yeah <laughs> well, that's, well, that, that, that's what that i guess everyone not is from any discussions i've had with flavor companies because that would be obviously from the market yeah. of information this is just me reading the newspaper yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. Or, you know sky news or but yeah it's it's totally there you know and um often you, you you know, the industry can talk up a trend, you know. Mm -hmm. And like that becomes the trend because of... The industry talked up organic. Or what yeah, yeah. About, you know. Yeah. It's, it's still there, but it's less, much less important than it was. But yeah. then we had that phrase of everything, got, even the flavours have got to be organic. And it was like, oh, yeah, really? And okay. it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy because yeah, someone because mentioned it. It's nothing to do with food safety or health. It's to do with selling no. more products. Yeah. And then that's when you that's when you realize that the cart's leading the horse because yeah. someone has read an article about organic and then wants a, an organic flavor based on something. And that doesn't mean contains carbon. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Indeed. So, yeah, I mean, if you look, you know, even if you look at um, um, from a technical point of view, look at um, low, low to no alcohol whiskey, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can't use the same flavor as you would do in a alcoholic environment as that because the whole solubility and aroma mm. aspect of the product is completely turned on its turned on its head. You have to you have to do your work on you know on partitioning and vapor uh, you know vapor pressures and these sort of things to mm -hmm. come up with the right uh, profile. Mm -hmm. The right balance and release, yeah. And yeah. that's something that I was super interested as well uh, yeah. in as well. And yeah. I was thinking, do you know, like, is there is there something easily that that you could easily replace alcohol with that obviously wasn't uh, <laughs> alcohol that had the same impact? And I was like, yeah. well, we could probably do this with like IPA, isopropyl alcohol, <laughs> maybe or maybe methanol. But yeah. I feel like that's full circle again, and we'll all be making moonshine and we'll all be blind. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Moonshine's the future. Yeehaw. Um, Yeehaw. Yeah, so, I mean, alcohol reduction, you know, alcohol flavor has been around for years. It's the quest to, to find that. If you go back to the, the, the low alcohol, what they call spritzers then, you know, this sort of, that sort of area. And um, I never forget once in Lotia, we had to, we had to remove chloroform out of, out of, a, out of a fisherman's friends. Oh my god, I love that. So that's kind of like the, that classic question of like, what does this smell like? Chloroform. Exactly. <laughs> Fisherman's friends used to contain chloroform. Now, obviously, not to a significant amount. Otherwise, yeah. really, yeah. it would definitely put people to sleep. Then <laughs> <laughs> was it ether? No, I think it was chloroform. I can't remember. Yeah. Might yeah. ask Mike Tyrrell. He'll, he'll tell. Uh, I'll ask him. 
I don't think any uh, trade secrets going out. I don't know really, but um, yeah. So no, we we it, it's it, it's the start of the new moon, if you like. I think with yeah. with this because of what's happening. Uh, you know, people still like the taste of meat. Yeah, they don't like the idea of killing animals to get that taste. But you know, yeah. if you look at a nice sort of sausage in your breakfast, you know, vegetarian vegan sausage, still got to really have that nice porky, savoury character to it. Yeah, and it's amazing how those things happen because we have this kind of, uh, I guess this is this is not standard of identity, but we have this inbuilt standard of identity of things that you've maybe tasted in the past. Yeah. And now your philosophical leanings or moral leanings started to shift as a society. And that's why these other markets start to grow. The same as the organic fruit and veg, the same as uh, totally. like a natural versus artificial. And sometimes those um, those moralistic leanings that people um have or feel they have can become a misconception you know like what you mentioned before about mm. uh, a natural flavor versus its artificial uh like yeah. um is isn't actually different necessarily or better or worse for your health totally. so it kind of becomes a misnomer some, some yeah. of the most dangerous things we know are natural so let's not go down that route you know Look at mycotoxins and this kind of thing, and uh, yeah. coronavirus, deadly, deadly, deadly <laughs> coronavirus. <laughs> Very unhealthy, yeah. So, I mean, natural is not always better for you. Let's get that one across. I sound like um, Jack Knights now, or Barry Beecham, maybe. <laughs> back in time, yeah. Uh, yeah. But oh, this is this is really good, um, Danny. I would like to give you the opportunity now to maybe round off how you would like to. But but from from my perspective, thank you so much for this chat. It's been really really great, and I know that if it was just you and me, we could carry on forever. But I feel like we need to be closer to a bar. Well, yeah. I, 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 to finish up, I mean, uh, first of all, thank you very much for the opportunity and the let's let's say the honour of being asked to, to do this. I I was really quite taken when uh, Jan emailed me, and I thought, well, that's very nice. Uh, I'm surprised it wasn't the first one you asked, but there you go. <laughs> the only point was that you weren't sitting directly next to me, otherwise you would have been. Uh, you saved the best to the end. You see. <laughs> I just, um, uh, I, I, I've, you know, I've, as I say, I've spent 50 years in this industry already, and um, I don't think I'll be doing another 50, but I'll certainly I'm here for the, I'm here for the duration, and um, happy to talk to anybody, help anybody in the industry. You know, young, old. Uh, whatever they're doing, um, we all can learn from each other. And I think that let's keep that spirit of going in the BSF and um, best of luck to everybody involved. And thank you very much. That's amazing. Thanks. Thanks so, so much, Danny. By the way, just one note. I hope that now when you're inundated with uh, requests to be trained uh, by new junior flavors, that you don't now lose time to train me because <laughs> so, I, yeah. I, I very much appreciate the open lines of communication. All right. Thank you very much, Trevor. Thanks so much, Danny. Have a good yes. evening. All the best now. Bye. This has been a deep dive into the fascinating world of flavours with BSF Flavour Talks. I hope that you've seen there is much more behind flavours. It is hard to acquire that right level of experience in order to create the perfect taste. If you've worked up an appetite for flavour signs, stay tuned for more episodes and help support our podcast by sharing it with others on social media or leave us a review.